you have somehow ended up listening to the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real but also is cool podcast or sturdy dick were bayek or uh never mind oh yeah we're back yes we are you know what time it is stuff that's real time and i uh, thought you were gonna say howdy duty time howdy duty time <laughs> hammer time it's time to learn about stuff that's real that you didn't know was real but also is cool and i've got something good today going going historic going back in time i'm excited to get into into this one but i don't know if it's my turn or your turn to go first i don't either i don't know whose turn it is who, who, who do we think is going to be the most interesting? Let, let that Definitely yours. So why don't you let me I mean, go you first? You don't know what mine is yet. I don't know. I know what mine is. I, you know what <laughs> I haven't done? I haven't shared with you in the private chat yet my topic. But let, let, I'll drop oh, that there right now. More. Okay. So today, since we have, since I have a tendency to talk about people dropping out of, of society and living in a hole or whatever... Today, I'm going to talk about somebody who dropped out of society and lived in essentially luxury in Spain for a time, but his time is up because the police found him. So let, let's loop back a second here. We're talking about Giochino, Giochino, Giochino Gamino. And if that name sounds vaguely mobster, well, you are correct. That is a vaguely mobster guy who disappeared and was on the run for about 20 years and has been uh, sort of the subject of a manhunt in all that time. And the guy's a murderer. He's a gangster. He's all the things that you can imagine. He actually did get caught and went to prison, but broke out of prison and has been on a lamb essentially ever since. But they found him. The police found him. And the, the way they found him is what uh, I'm most interested in <laughs> because what ended up happening was this guy started showing up on the internet in some interesting places, including on Google Maps. So the article is, cops claim Google Maps led them to a mafia member, but there's more to it than that. And they're right. There is more to it to that because not only did Google Maps lead them to this guy, but he was getting reviews on Yelp for one of the uh, businesses he owns in Spain. So basically... This guy escaped from prison and went to Spain and opened up a, a small like natural foods grocer in Spain that is apparently very popular and very highly rated. He also opened up a restaurant in Spain. And what's really interesting about this is that he named so the gro the grocery store he opened, he called El Huerto de Manu, which means the Garden of Manu which is his alias. <laughs> Manu is his, the alias that he operated under. Under his so, own name. So he opens up a grocery his, store. <laughs> he opened a grocery store, hiding out from the police. Nice. And he's gotten, uh, it says, the gross, Green Grocers has a stellar 4.7 star rating on Google. <laughs> so he's actually he's, good at it. <laughs> he's actually good at it. So they were, he was outside, though, chatting with someone in front of his store. When the the Google Maps car drove through and snapped a photo of him, so that was you know right under his name, by the way, like directly under his alias. They show a photo of this in the article, and then later that wasn't enough, of course. 
Um, they, you know, there was a sort of suspicion there, but what ultimately ended up getting him caught was that he showed up on Facebook for his restaurant, La Casina de Manu, mm. okay. <laughs> or Manu's Kitchen. And the thing is, so on Google Maps, they actually blur out your face, the faces of people, so that they are not recognizable. So there is some, there is a suspicion that Google may have provided law enforcement with some tools to unmask people in these photos. That's unconfirmed, but apparently, I did not know this, but apparently Google Maps has some of its roots in and origins in the CIA. Mm. So there is speculation around that. But the guy shows up on, on Facebook and he's got they've got a Twitter handle and everything. They actually post one of the tweets. It's a very highly rated little restaurant in this area with only a few complaints. Every now and then someone complains on most of his ratings are very high, but sometimes someone will complain <laughs> that, you know, it, that he was rude or that there was some, you know, a slow service or something like that. Someone says that Manu attacked a local counselor and threatened to kill him. That's same seem to track. Sounds uh, mafia-ish. Says the, the dispute, the one that led to his threat, stemmed from an order to stop using a smoky stone oven, Spain's, in Spain's ABC News reports. Camino wrote the counselor a letter of apology, was fined 1,500, I'm thinking that's euros, and, then, and paid the victim 325 euros in compensation, but he was spared a prison sentence. And they actually have closed circuit television footage of that confrontation. So... This is something that <laughs> is just out. I'm like, this guy is just, he's trying to, he's been hiding. He asked the police when they came and got him, how did you find me? He says, I haven't even talked to my own family in 10 years. Yeah. And, they, and you think of it like this. I'm thinking of this guy's like an old school. They, they have a photo that they put together. that has Tony Soprano's head yeah. on a, little puppet yeah. <laughs> body or something and uh i'm like yeah i'm thinking of this guy one of these guys you know who is just old school who stays away from he doesn't get gps for his car you, you know doesn't use a cell phone because the government can track you he's got all these you know he's playing all these cards but it never once occurred to him that you know advertising himself on google and facebook and you know <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter and, and these places might actually lead someone to discover who he was. The reason they were able to identify him was that he has a very recognizable scar on his okay. chin. It's still conceivable that they might never have found him had he not done things like operate under his alias and post <laughs> his photo online. But anyway, so this is to me. So this is one of those things that, that interests me because, you know, I have, what, for whatever reason, a fascinating. We've talked about this before. We talked about this just last episode. I have a fascination with people who can drop out of society right. and thrive. Right. You know, because it proves that you know. To me, it's proof that it's possible that you know. There's probably more. You know, you can do more with your life than you probably think you can. That's the way I think of it. So now, unfortunately, a lot of the stories I. I come across that fascinate me are people who've done something wrong and are hiding out and deserve to be caught. But it also, I have come across stories here and there from people who were not doing anything wrong. They just decided to disappear. But right. you've always got the stories like I remember, and, and it's always, there's always a sort of iffy legal gray area with these things. But there was a story right. of a guy who left his wallet and keys and 
everything he had on him in a gas station near his home, a gas station restroom near his home, and disappeared. And and so police started investigating to find out whether or not he'd been abducted, murdered, whatever. Wife reported him missing. And he went missing for a very long time. There's actually nothing illegal about that. But what but one of the one of the sort of gray areas is she files for insurance, you know, after they've basically declared him legally dead, she files to collect insurance. Now there's a crime because you know, it's insurance fraud. If you're still alive and but it's iffy because she filed, he was declared legally dead. There's a sort of iffy gray area there. But the thing that really made that story illegal is that he turned out he was in Mexico and was in contact with his wife, giving her instructions on what she should do <laughs> to okay. collect the insurance okay. and to send him some of the money. So now we're out of the gray area and now into actual crime. But what's interesting is, is I've in some books I've read and things I've consumed on this topic, there's a book called How to Disappear. Not the only book by that title, but the one I read was called How to Disappear. And one of the things it talks about, one of the ways that people, that the FBI and others track these uh, fugitives and people who are on the run is they'll do something like set up a website and say, if you've seen this person, if you have any information, share it here publicly on this website so that we can track this person. And what ends up happening is that person will start going to that website to see if, if anyone's onto them. Yeah. And the FBI tracks their IP address and says, oh, there's this guy in Mexico who is ch- checking this website like every 48 hours. That may be our guy. And so they mm. go, they get permission from the country to go in and they, you know, stake him out. And if they can get photos of him, then they can bring him in. So there's all these little things. And that's the kind of thing that has, that sort of happened here, I think, with yeah. people who were looking for this guy and they were, Probably what's interesting is it's not he was hiding in plain sight, which is fine, but he was dumb enough to use his, his alias and, you know, he was con- just really well connected with. Now, Manu is not a, a that's a f- fairly common a, a name, actually. But, yeah. you know, in conjunction with everything else, it was enough. These are the kinds of things I write about a lot in, in my thrillers. Just, you know, they're tracking someone and they use these kind of techniques. I've had more of my crimes solved via Google Maps than I can count. Yeah. Anyway. And I think it's interesting. I I think we're fiction writers and and people who write TV series and and movies and all that inform tech companies into new ways of tracking down criminals and vice versa. Yeah. It used to be like the NSA and the CIA were the two, you know, at least known organizations that would create the technology to do this stuff. Now... Silicon Valley's got their skin in the game, you know? Yeah. In order to... Uh, well, and I think... Technology, like you said, the Google Maps. Yeah. If they're subtracting the blur on his face. I, I don't think that's what they did. I think Google I don't think has a camera either. that's taking just images in, and then later on, the algorithm is applying a blur to the face. Yeah. Yeah. So they just and all they had to do was get the original so, the, there, so there could be some facial recognition there, but I think it was more corroborative than it was, you know, actual evidence. Like, I, because I, I think that... I don't think that they that law enforcement went and unscrambled that photo or were given special access to that photo. No. I think what instead happened was you got a guy who meets the general description of of the guy they're after under a sign that has his 
alias on it. Right. And then you also have this other information from a new, from a different website, you know, that has an actual photo with a guy with the scar. And you can start coordinating and figuring this out. And then they go and do the the legwork. They go and right. case right. the place and they you know, track him. And then sooner or later, they show up at his door. I think, honestly, I don't think that the CIA, FBI, or anyone else is willing, is ever going to admit this. But I think they learn from from people like us, writers yeah. and and filmmakers. And actually, I don't just think that. I know that is true for a fact because of Brad Thor and Michael Bay, who mm-hmm. are both seat have seats on the what's it called? Oh gosh, now I'm not going to remember the name of it. But it's a think tank. It's like Red Squad or. Something mm. like that. And it's, dang, I wish I had looked this up before we started talking. But basically, they're part of this think tank of people that the government has tapped to say, go sit in a room together and think about all the ways that the U.S. is vulnerable and could be attacked or, you know, everything that you can can think of. If you were going to yeah. write the world's most intricate thriller plot and make a movie of it, what would you do to both do it and to beat it and these guys all sit in a room together and do that and so i know that they're 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 tapping the creative resources of writers and and producers yeah and why not we're coming up with stuff that we're you know we don't have to worry about how we just have to make it somewhat plausible yeah so we're like hey can you guys take and do this and subtract this and make this and then pop out the answer and then the nerds have to figure out how to actually make that happen it's the old adage of you know i can make the most expensive blockbuster film of all time and not spend a dime just by writing the book. So that that story can be as epic as it needs to be. A lot of these organizations, terrorist organizations and enemy, foreign enemies that we have or whatever, they have the resources to make some of this stuff actually happen. You know, tapping into the creative world and asking, how would you do this if you had unlimited resources is a smart move. And then that same group counters it you know, I like that idea of, you know, I I pitch a scenario and Nick Packer comes up with a way to beat it and vice versa. And yeah, then exactly. you write it all down. and Friendly uh, one-upsmanship of writing. That's the way it works. Yeah. And it's uh, it's beneficial to the world in in that way, but I think that what happens is you know more than more times than not, fiction has influenced reality and science and law enforcement and that sort of thing. People study you know people study Sherlock Holmes for law, in law enforcement to to learn deductive reasoning, for example. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke was the one who came up with the idea of uh, geosynchronous orbit for satellites, and that that inspired someone to actually go out and make it happen. You know, science or uh, fiction is constantly informing the real world. Went on a left turn there, but I think it's all related. It's all related. <laughs> that's good stuff. And that, but enough about my stuff that's real. What kind of stuff is real in your world, Nick? I've got some stuff that's not real. That segues into some stuff that's real. I, you know, I, I think it's high time we go back to the thing that started it all for Nick Thacker, which is the Da Vinci Code. But lest you be confused, dear listener, I did not write the Da Vinci Code. For I wish I had. <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't write the Da Vinci Code <clears throat> or did write I've it. written it since it was released. <laughs> My, About 30 I've other told times. you the story that that without quite realizing it, I completely plagiarized the, the Da Vinci Code there. with my We've first all been book. There. 
Yeah. So we've all done it. And I'm no, I'm no saint either. No, the thing is I, I got started writing, you know, largely because of authors like uh, Dan Brown and James Rollins, Clive Cussler, you know, these are the guys that I read and I discovered that genre, believe it or not, through the Da Vinci Code. And in the Da Vinci Code, the, the reason I liked the Da Vinci Code was it just created, it weaved this very believable and plausible tapestry of history, you know, fictitious history that was based on real history. And that's the, the MO of how we do things here in the action adventure thriller department. And, and Dan Brown, I think, is a master of this. I think he's very good at taking, you know, a piece of art or, you know, a, a scientific theory something straight out of his, out of the history books that we know was real. And then, you know, tacking on some questions like, well, what if it was done by this instead? Or what if this person had done it? And then making, you know, weaving a whole story around that, you know, and he gets a little mansplainy at some points, but, uh, you know, largely he does this well. And he wants to describe what his characters are seeing because Dan himself has been to most of these places and has seen these things. With that kind of background, there was... Uh, most of you remember this. There's a there was a big debate, a big issue back when the world was much simpler and we didn't have things like viruses, and Russian invasions to worry about. We worried about what Dan Brown was writing, and what people got really mad, especially the Christianese folks, got really bent out of shape because you know he was leading us astray, and teaching us that Jesus had a daughter, and all this crazy stuff, all this crazy talk, and this was bad for all these Christians. And one of the things that was used to disprove Dan Brown's theory, who he'd never claimed was, he's like, I'm writing a fiction book, guys, but just chill out. Yeah. One of the one of the things these guys used to hammer the nail in the coffin, if you will, of this being proven false, was this idea of the Priory of Sion. Yeah. This, this organization that's existed all the way back to 1080, I think was the date that he said. And people like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, of course, Victor Hugo, had been a part of this organization, had been grandmasters of it. And, and so Dan Brown, you know, weaves all this stuff around either knowing or not knowing that the Priory of Sion was completely, you know, made up, but it doesn't matter because Dan Brown did the same thing. And then we got mad at Dan Brown for doing the same thing, using something he used in his book as like a weapon against an ammunition against why he shouldn't do that. So it's, the whole thing is super ironic to me. And I remember reading this in like high school or whatever going, this is stupid. Why are we all so mad at this guy? He just wrote a good book. Anyway. So that's the second layer of this, of this stuff. That's real. Going back to the first thing I said, this third layer is, and yet, there are still things in the Da Vinci Code and things that Dan writes about that are in fact real and that are cool. And a lot of these, you know, like we, we know Leonardo Da Vinci was a, was a person. He was a real dude. He was really smart and did some really cool stuff. So that's an example of clearly Dan's not saying he's fake, but we don't know all of the extent of what Leonardo Da Vinci did. He could have had a secret journal somewhere, for example. And this is the kind of stuff that's to us writing our books. Yeah. One of the things in the Da Vinci Code that was brief mention was the, and I don't know if the, the actual hall was mentioned, but in the Shugborough Hall in Staffordshire, England, I love those names, these, these English people, man, their names, woo, is a monument, 18th century monument, and it's called the Shepherd's Monument. And on this Shepherd's Monument, it kind of looks like the entrance to a tomb. I don't think there's a structure behind it. There's a picture of it with some trees around it and everything. So I don't think this goes like into a, it's not an actual tomb or a crypt or anything like that, but it's just like a, it looks like a facade of a building and there's a relief on it. It's like a flat rectangular piece of stone with some relief text that has a painting by Nicolas Poisson, which I think means fish in French and a cipher text that's stumped historians and decoders for hundreds of years. 
10 letters and it looks like Latin it might be, you know, a lot of V's, things like that. And we don't really know what it means. And this kind of played, and it was mentioned, I think, in Da Vinci Code, if I remember. Yeah. Um, he related it to the Priory of Sion and all that, which we know is fake. But this monument is real. This actual monument is here or there in England. And it was built in the 1700s. So Thomas Anson, who's a British Parliament member, commissioned this piece. And the Flemish sculptor Peter Shee finished it, built it. The enigma is this, this Latin text. This There's a set of series of letters with dots in between them. In my mind, that denotes an acronym of some sort. And then offset to the left and right of those letters and down a little bit are two letters, D and M, on either side, kind of straddling this other word. So the letters are U, or sorry, O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V. And then framing those letters are the D and the M on either side. And so it's just this weird cryptic cipher text, and we don't really know what it means. It's just this... On the sorry, there's other letters on the tomb. So under that, under that, on the tomb itself, uh, are the words "et in Arcadia ego," which is Latin for "I am even in Arcadia," which means absolutely nothing to me, but I'm sure it means something to somebody. And then under that is the, uh, the this inscription thing. All right. So everybody with me so far? We got this weird flat rock, and I'm gonna find the the other article that I have pulled up because there's a guy who thinks he's figured out what this thing means. It's the whole point of this. Anyway, have you heard of this thing? Have you seen this before? I remember, yeah, I've come across this various times. Yeah. I don't know what it means. Yeah. I'm working on it. I'll come up with my own explanation and I'll write a book. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's probably kind of what I'm going to do with it. (laughs) Yeah. So this guy, uh, there's a guy named Keith Massey, who I just, I'm sorry, he just really sounds like a stiff upper lip kind of guy, but he believes he's found a convincing answer, but not to, to shy away from his pretentious academic background, he then says that there's no reason to continue searching for the answer. He's figured it out. But in in true British humility fashion, I think he's a Brit, I don't know. He goes, I believe I've solved the mystery. I believe my proposal provides a sensible and credible interpretation to this long-standing mystery, states Massey, with high hopes that the code can now be stripped of its enigmatic shroud. And then he goes on to talk about how awesome his Solution is, my solution provides a straightforward and grammatical sentence, all parts of which are attested in tomb inscriptions and text predating or contemporary with the creation of the Shugborough inscription. My God, dude. Uh, he emphasizes the straight-to-the-point approach as an accurate method and advises not to look for any deeper meaning. You believe this guy? He's <laughs> funny. This is I love when like, people advise me not to look for any deeper meaning. You're pretty confident about yourself, aren't you, man? <laughs> You just know. You just, and I guess what I'm saying, like, I've seen Indiana Jones, right? I know what happens when you figure out the mystery, shit opens, right? Yeah. Yeah. So clearly he hasn't figured anything out. Cause if you right. just, you know, you open Sesame or something, this thing should go and like open up and there's like a tomb inside. We step downstairs into this, you know, yeah. spider cobwebbed crypt with live skeletons running around. Anyway, yeah. so he believes or, himself. Or a discotheque. If you're or in. if you've seen the late, not the late, the, the new movie Uncharted, they, they got to go through a, a dance club to to get to the, the true tune. <laughs> I have so many problems with that movie, but let's move on. That's for next week, Kevin. That's next things stuff that's real. This movie sucked. That movie was real. amazing, and you're wrong objectively. 
objectively false. They didn't find one single like hidden tomb or anything that wasn't also accessible from out in right. broad public. They're like, oh, let's look up into the, let's like, use the, the these sewer keys. hole that, and talk to the other guy that's with us and be like, hey, man, can you open the sewer hole? After we <laughs> crawled 500 feet through this underground here's a, thing. That- here's a secret door that's been here for more than 500 years in this public sewer that people access all the time. But Don't forget no the one, one right ever behind tried the bar. to open it. Don't forget the one right behind the bar. And the one in the bar and the one in whatever. What was that? McDonald's? Yeah, yeah. There was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the no glass. one ever tried to open this door. Let's shoot the glass. Let's see what happens. Hey, Vito, come down here and help me snake this drain. Hey, look at that door over there. <laughs> oh, next week, I said. It's for next week. <laughs> we don't have time. We don't have time. Go we don't ahead. know how awesome the movie is. <laughs> oh man so yeah anyway he thinks that the, i can't even now that's uncharted it's such a good movie yeah he's just so mass he's just so damn confident i love it i hate it by the way that's sarcasm he strongly believes that the letters d and m the ones below the inscription are these leading clues he thinks that makes the job easier and that the letters stand for dis manibus which means for the mains where the mythical spirits of the underworld which is found inscribed on various ancient Christian tombs. Okay, so that's a good clue. Like, for the mains, which would probably, you know, in Latin, this means that this is a tomb of some sort, right? So then he elaborates, and he says, the connection between the mains and Christian tombs is a clue to the correct interpretation, again, doubling down on how awesome he is, of this longer series of letters. Uh, So this inscription is intended to be understood as a tomb memorial composed in Latin. Let me actually find where he says what 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 it means. I think it was up at the top, actually. I said it was the second uh, one I sent. Okay, here it goes. So these letters, O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V, may stand for... Uh, that's Sorry, that's the, the article. If Massey's saying it, he knows that this stands for Oro ut omnis sequantor viam ad verum vitam, which translates to, I pray that all may follow the way to true life. Okay, so then he's, he's figured it okay. out. I've solved it. Now it's not an enigma anymore. Everybody move along. I don't know what his big hangup is. Well, with us not, you know, like we just accept his thing as law, and then I, I, you know I, mean? I have to throw. Can, am, can I throw a wrinkle into this? You can throw a wrinkle. You can, but as long as it's proven on Massey, then here's, you can do whatever you want. But. Then I, here's a slight wrinkle that I don't know that anyone has considered. Maybe someone has. I haven't done the research, but if you look at this, every single character that appears on this inscription, every single one of them has a dot to its right except for that final v Mm, and the only way if you were to move the d and the m upward the only way that you can consistently keep that v as the only one with no dot to its right is if you put them in the order m d o u o s v a v v okay yep that's the only that's the only combination no, I guess that's not the only combination. It could be DM. That's true. Be, so it could be, be DMO or MD. Yeah. 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 If you're taking the letter so, and the dot as one unit together, yeah. Then the then the, there's a couple different Which, interpretations of this, but it wouldn't end with V. It would. Oh, no, it would. It would, end with, it would end with every v, time. It wouldn't end yeah. with M. Yeah. It couldn't end if you're considering the the letter and the dot to be one unit. It could never end with anything but that v so the only variables are going to be dm or md that's my observation <laughs> that's the quirk i notice it's like why is there a dot next to the d and the m but no dot next to the v 
Well, look, man, Keith Lincoln, Keith Massey told you not to worry about this anymore. Okay. He's already solved it. Said, Damn, don't look for deeper meaning. Don't look this for deeper solved. meaning. Move on. The science is settled. <laughs> the science is settled. <laughs> Where have I heard that before? What? Oh, man. Anyway. The science is settled. The law is settled. The history is settled. Everything's always settled. Settled. For the people who want anymore. things to stay as they are. <laughs> yeah. That's just it. Why does it have to be like it wasn't settled before and then he gets to settle it and say that it's yeah. settled again? That's academic for you, man. That's what it is. Yeah. But, and that's the thing. And then as far as I'm concerned, nothing is ever settled. You can never, exactly. you know, uh, it can never prove anything to, to such a degree that, that there's never a question again. Even things that we take for granted as just naturally settled, like gravity, you know, gravity is not actually a constant. It's variable across the surface of the earth and it's variable from the earth to the moon, from the moon out into the rest of the solar system. You know, gravity is a variable, not a constant. And, and the same with light is not as constant as we think it is. It can, it can be measured as either a particle or a wave, depending on the observer, you know, this side, this whole concept of don't question anything any further because it's settled is just naive. It just, it really <laughs> speaks to the self-consciousness these guys have. You know, I just, I'm going to po posit an explanation for this that I believe is rooted in, in, in Latin history, Christianity, and, you know, language and linguistics. Okay, great, man. That's cool. You are a studied scholar. You are a gentleman and a scholar. Provide your explanation. And then goes on to say, Here's what I believe it is. Okay, done. That's it. Done. Move on. It's not an enigma anymore. That's I it. think, though, that you may be slightly misinterpreting what he said. Because he was saying, I I, this is what I think he means. I'm going to be. I'm going to apply some apologetics here. But okay, I, I think good. what he was saying really was the, it would be a mistake to, to try to ascribe deeper meaning to this than, than this. But he's saying it's more straightforward. There's no it's, mystery. It's sort of the it. old adage, right? The adage of the most obvious solution is therefore the yeah. It's an Occam's Razor event. Occam's yeah. Razor. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, though, just like everyone else, the whole Dunning Kruger uh, effect can mm -hmm. can impact even the most learned scholar, just mm -hmm. like it can the guy sitting at the bars throwing back uh, Miller Lite. It's it's a sort of there's a danger to locking yourself into a, a certain way of thought and assuming you know more than you know, you know. But that's the and that's the thing. And then we that's a philosophical point, really, because ultimately this guy is an expert. He's his chances of being right are far higher than our chances of being right about anything well, like this. Well. Higher. No, just higher doesn't mean <laughs> guaranteed. You know, far higher. Far okay. Really, when it comes down to it, if you really want to talk about the odds, you know, and statistics, really, statistically, he might be more inclined to be right than we are, but the odds are still 50 50. Yeah, exactly. Because well, he right. doesn't know either. And that's the trick that the media plays on you a lot is they present statistics and, and probabilities as if they're the same thing. When in fact, they get probability wrong all the time. They're yeah. almost constantly wrong about probability. Statistics, though, can be manipulated in literally any direction you want, depending on what data set you're willing to use. And what they do, what happens a lot is someone will exclude a certain data set 
or certain sets of data, multiple sets, and, and only include sets of data that are supportive of their argument. And that is a statistics trick that gets used all the time by government, by media, by podcast hosts. We, we're mm. inclined to only present the facts that support our argument as well. Because, because I want to be right, dude. Because you want to be right. But that's why it's always uh, it's a hundred percent always up to the individual. I used a percentage yeah. there. It's a hundred percent up to the individual to do your own digging, your own questioning, question everything. It's convenient to accept something at face value. So if you're in a rush and you got no options, that's fine. But don't take everything you hear and see as that is an expert who has said that, so that must be correct. They've done research I haven't done. So it must be correct. You know, you can use assumption for convenience, but don't use it as a way of life. Totally. No, and I think I'm just being salty because it's fun and easy I know. Uh, to sit here. I know you are. But it gives room. me an opportunity to pontificate, and I'll never pass on an opportunity to pontificate. I just think it's funny when people who are experts and who have every right to make claims like this and be taken seriously have to then double down on how smart they are and all that. And you could be right. Maybe he's just... Maybe he's just saying, look, it's probably a simple answer. It's probably, you know, nothing crazy. There's it's nothing the, about this thing. Yeah, but. no, it's the same thing as the folks who who verify Da Vinci painting or Van Gogh painting or something, you know, or Degas or whatever. You know, a lot of times they it's their reputation on the line. It's so if, right. if they're asked to verify that this actually is a painting by that master and they get it wrong and it comes out publicly, that's a big deal. So they tend to double down. No, I am an expert. I have seen, I own this many Degas paintings. I have studied the brush strokes. I have studied the crackular, whatever, however you pronounce that. I know this topic better than anyone else. And so my opinion is the truth. And so that's just the, that's, you know, that's ego really, but it's also just professional credibility. And that it, once that's damaged, it's just gone, you know? If you become known as the guy who said that's that is 100% a, that inscription is 100% what I said it is then and it's proven wrong no one's ever going to that's your livelihood you know yeah. so of course you double right. down and of course you say don't look behind the curtain you know don't dig any deeper it's settled you know seems it just seems a little disingenuous that's all i think so too but i'm playing the other side of the yeah, I don't. Have, I don't advocate for the devil. You know, I'm not. It's not a devil's advocate scenario. It's more of a. I. I want to understand the perspective on both sides because um, it helps me avoid the danger of falling into that trap myself, yeah. or at least I want it to. And and so, you know, it's fine. I, I think it's fine to look at this from that guy's perspective and say his intentions are probably that he wants to. You know, he wants to solve this. He wants it to be solved because we all do. You know, everyone who looks at this wants to know, and this is a way for people to know and feel satisfied, and he wants to be right, you know, because his credibility is on the line. Right. Yeah. But see, that's good for characterization. I'll allow like it. You're a writer, and you're creating a character who is an expert like this. If I were writing this guy, that's – everyone is the hero of their own story, and yeah. this guy is the hero of his story – and if I was writing this guy, even if he turns out to be the ass who threw everything off track, 
I still need him to believe that what he's doing is for the greater good or for the is he's doing True. things yeah. for the reasons that he thinks are right. You know, and that's why when you read a book or watch a movie and the bad guy is just so over the top evil that it's farcical, you know, and right. hard to believe. Right. Uh, yeah, there's no yeah, there's no reality in it. Then we're not going to believe that. There's no reality in it. That 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 villain, in order to be an effective villain, that villain really must believe that the, that they're doing the absolute right thing. Thanos in the Avengers movies was doing what he was doing not because he hated people, but because he loved people and the universe. He wanted he to believe I mean, it was the right thing. Yeah, he thought it was the right thing. And, and, and now he was a smug bastard about it in the end. But then contrast that with the Joker. Right. You know, just actually, in the more recent, well, in the more recent, in the Christian Bale Joker or uh, Christian Bale Batman <clears throat> movies, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker was the first Joker I ever encountered that I actually thought what fit this dynamic of a yeah. of a well developed villain because he yeah. actually did think, or he even though his mind was twisted, you know, yeah, yeah he was sociopathic for sure. He but. was he was observing something about the human condition. Right. And genuinely thought this is the right path. You know, mur- he was a murderer. He's murderer mayhem. You know that he's all about that. But he had it at his as his goal. He wanted something about the world to to awaken. Yeah. You know, he wanted to point out the the farcical nature of a man dressed up as a bat pursuing justice in a right. world where, to his thinking. Justice was impossible, you know. So anyway, yeah. More tangents. Sorry, I am apparently. Uh, it's okay. You're giving me awesome title coffee. ideas. The yeah, the, the Joker and the academic. <laughs> there you go. I, I I I actually I always think about the nonfiction books that I'm not writing. You know, like I should write some sort of treatise on, you know, movie villains, fictional villains, and. You know, how what equals good characterization for these things? But I don't want to write it from that sort of stiff, you know, uh, writer's guide kind of thing. I, I, I want to cover it from a more psychological perspective, yeah, and yeah. philosophical perspective. So, yeah. anyway, you should, if you're listening, you should write us. Uh, what's the email address? It's what's our email hello address? Hello at hello stuff that's a com- Hello at stufftitsreal.com and let us know what of all the topics we've talked about today or any day, what do you think would make a good nonfiction book that you would read? Let us know. Hmm. Hello us know. at stufftitsreal.com. Anyway, I took over again. Sorry, Nick. That's okay. That's what I do. That's my character. I'm just flaw. doing show notes over here, just you know, waiting around. <laughs> <laughs> waiting to wrap up. Just waiting around, waiting to press All the button. Right. No, I'm just kidding, man. I'm getting a hard time. It's always fun. I love these tangents. The tangents are what make the fiction, you know, more fun and easier to write. Yeah. And this is where, yeah, I, I explore these ideas a lot in my fiction. I have talky books, I've realized. You know, hmm. there's action. Talkie. There's a lot of action, but they're talky. They're the Kevin Smith oh. movies of thriller novels. Mm. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> talkies all right with that said we'll let you all go on about your daily scheduled programming glad you included us in it and uh, we will talk at you soon 
this has been stuff that's real that you didn't know was real, but also is cool. Goodbye, everybody. See you later. Stuff that's real.